The message today is entitled, God's Word, Our Foundation. It's a two-part message because I, I just could not get this one uh, subject into one message. So it's a two-part message, and we're going to be talking about what the Bible is and the role it plays in Christian life. What role does it play in our lives? It's going to be a little bit more teaching today and next week, for sure. So uh, just kind of keep that in mind. You're going to be challenged at certain points. I definitely want to challenge. I want all of us to be challenged every time we come together, but there's going to be more teaching. I encourage you to have your notes out, notebook out, phone out. You can take pictures of whatever slides that come up. Um, we're going to be talking about God's Word. Amen? I want to pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we just give you the next several minutes. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bind every demonic thought, every demonic attack that would keep us from understanding just how important this is, the reason why we need to talk about this first. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes to hear you clearly. In the name of Jesus, we say that this message is yours. The words that come out of my mouth, let them be yours. I pray that everything that happens in the next several minutes would be from you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, question one, and we're going to ask more questions next week in the second part, but this is the main question we're answering today. What is the Bible, and can we trust it? What is the Bible? Christian doctrine and history teaches that the Bible is the divinely inspired, infallible Word of God and is the final authority for instruction of Christian conduct. It is infallible and divinely inspired. We're going, to look at the, we're going to look at those two words in a minute. Or, yeah, two words in a minute. And it's the final authority for how we live our lives. How many of y'all believe that the Bible is the foundation of our faith? How many of y'all believe Jesus is the foundation of our faith? Well, which is it? Okay. Um, someone would say the same thing. So is Jesus the Bible? Is this Jesus? Oh, we're not sure now. Let's, what the, let's, see, what G, let's see what the Bible says. John 1.14. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the flesh that we saw had glory, the glory as of the only Son. Well, who's the Son, according to the Bible? Okay, you can be, you can be confident about this answer. <laughs> it's Jesus. So the Word became flesh, which is Jesus, and we know Jesus is the Son. So Jesus is the Word, but is Jesus the Bible? You may not realize this, but when we talk about the Bible and the Word of God, we use the, that phrase and that word interchangeably, God's Word, the Word of God, the Bible. But are they the same? Almost. The Bible contains the Word of God, but is not itself the Word of God. This is a Bible. If I were to set this book on fire, would I destroy the Bible? This book. Would I destroy this book? Would I destroy the Word of God? No, I would not destroy it. Look at 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, those who are saved, either Jews or Greeks or whoever else, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen to this. You can destroy a book, but you cannot destroy the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And the reason why you can't destroy Jesus is because Hebrews 7 talks about he is a, our high priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, but because he lived an indestructible life. The word of God is indestructible. There was a French philosopher, Frenchman in the 1700s. His name was Voltaire. And he claimed that within 100 years, the Bible would cease to exist. He was so confident to believe that this book that we had was so worthless that within 100 years, it would not be around. Within 100 years, the printing press he used to print his literature was used to print that Bible. The, there's a reason why the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's because it's not backed by words on a page. It's backed because it is the representation of the Son of God. And you can't get rid of him. Back to the question about the foundation. So this is how I would put it. Is the Bible the same thing as the Word of God? The Word of God, Jesus, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, is the foundation of our faith. This is the foundation of our faith because it contains the Word of God. But this itself is not our foundation. Jesus himself is our foundation. I'm going to say this. I was going to say this at the end. When you read this book, you're not just reading words on a page. You're actually interacting with a real person. This book is alive. It's not dead. It's alive. It's not static like other books. It is alive. And when you're reading this book, you're actually, the author of the book is actually there with you. You can pick up any other books in the world, and there's a, you may get a book signed, but there's a really great chance that you're not really good friends with an author of a well-known book. When you sit down with the Bible, you're sitting down with the person who created you and wrote these words on the pages. You can hear his voice in any part of this book. We'll get back to that later. How we think about our past, how we live in our presence, and how we prepare for the future, if you're a believer, must be ran through this book. Has to be. How you think about your past, your past failures or successes, how you're living today, and how you think about the future has to be ran through the Word of God. What we believe about God, what we believe about hell, about sin, about morality, about culture, about society, about laws, everything is ran through the book, the Word of God. Other religions that claim Christianity, there's other, other religions, but there are some religions that claim Christianity do not hold the Bible to be the only inspired book. Mormons, for example, have the Holy Bible, but they also have the Book of Mormon. They believe which is as inspired, and some believe more inspired. We as uh, Protestant Christians reject that. There are Jehovah's Witnesses that also, they have a Bible. I didn't say this last sermon, but they have a very bad translation of the Bible. And um, most uh, um, scholarly critics would agree with that. 
they also have other literature that they may not say is inspired, but they get a lot of their doctrine from. For example, there's a book that says Jesus did not rise from the dead. His body did not rise from the dead. They say that his spirit rose from the dead, but his body didn't. Well, that contradicts the Bible because when Jesus appeared to the 12 in the upper room, they, they, Jesus said, touch my hands. Look, look at the nail prints. In my hands, I'm here. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're not going to rise from the dead. Even um, Catholicism, they believe in the Bible. And we're going to talk about that next week, the different translations uh, of the Bible and these different books in, in their Bible versus our Bible. But they don't hold the Bible as the final authority. They believe their final authority is the Pope and tradition. And there's some reasons they, they, they hold that. I believe it's not correct, and we can look at that a little bit. But we believe that the Bible is the blueprint and foundation of our faith in God's house. This is why we're starting with this. I, um, I almost didn't start the series with this message. What I was going to say was, okay, we're starting the series Building God's House. We're going to look at, you know, the studs and the sheetrock and the roof. And, you know, I was going to put the different parts like the church, pastors, submission, um, leadership, service, giving. I was, we're going to look at all those things. But what I was going to do is say, we're going to just assume that the Bible is God's word, which it is. We're going to talk, talk about that today. And then go from there. That way we can get it into starting to build God's house. Because I realized how big of a, uh, how much of this is to tackle. And I thought, I want to really, I want to stay on point about building God's house. But then I remembered, as I was having that thought, how poor of a relationship that Christians have with the word of God. How often do you read this book? Most Christians only read the Bible when they come to church on Sunday. And most Christians don't even open up their own Bible. They read what's on the screens. It really is an issue of immaturity. We all know this. We used to be immature. Hopefully we're not immature anymore. But we know people who are immature. Would you, speak, would you say it's safe to say that immature people don't know that they hurt themselves? Especially, we have kids, they're immature. They don't realize that if, you, if they're young enough that if you touch a hot stove, they're going to get burned. They don't realize that you can't just, um, if they're at the driving age, take a car and just start driving and not know the rules and the laws and how the car works. In the same way, we, when we don't read the Bible, we don't realize how we hurt ourselves. If you look at higher learning, you look at any formal education, if you're going to learn something and go to the next level and get certification or a degree, you have to read. There's nothing in this life that you can really accomplish without reading and being informed on a subject. But yet we do it all the time. It's possible to love God and be immature. I would actually, it's, you can actually argue that you really can't love God unless you read how to love him in his word. You can think you love God. You can say you love God. You can believe you love God. But unless you're going to his word and figuring out what it takes to love him, you really can't love him. You can only say you love him. 
So this is why we're starting here. <laughs> because we have to learn to open up the book. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It has 165 verses. Anybody want to guess what this chapter is about? The importance of God's word. Look at verse 1. I'm going to read just four verses. Psalm 119.1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. You can't walk in the law of the Lord unless you know what it is. Verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. So it's not just enough to read the Bible. He says, blessed are those who read it with all their hearts, who seek him with all of their hearts. How much do you love the Bible? Do you love it enough to get by? Or do you love it because it's God's words to you, his literal words to you? Not just to a church, but to you. Psalm 119, Psalm 1911, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you want to learn how not to sin against God? Get in his word, memorize it, meditate on it. When you're reading, and just a, just a little, little tip, we'll get into this more next week, but if you're reading and you ha- there's a verse that jumps out at you, stay on that verse, read it a couple more times, and then ask God, are you trying to say something to me? What are you trying to say to me? I promise you that if there's a verse that sticks out to you, he's trying to, he's trying to say something to you about it. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We cannot walk well without his word. You can walk, but you're going to run into a lot of things and you're going to hurt yourself. But if we have the light of God's word lighting our path, you won't run into anything. You'll be safe and you'll be protected. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And just in case you don't know what reproof is, that's another word for correction. I thought it was interesting that Paul used another word for correction in there because he realized we need the Bible to correct us. Reproof is actually rebuke, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Meaning, if we don't read God's word, we're incomplete. We need his word to be complete. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. You know where else we hear about God breathing in the Bible? When he breathed life into Adam. (laughs) The same power that gave us life, dirt, life. And a soul is the same power that's found in his word. Every time you read his word, you are inhaling the same breath that gave you life. It's powerful. 2 Peter 1.16. This is Peter talking. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but he was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. The three closest disciples were John, Peter, and James. This is what he said. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we didn't, and he's talking about the scriptures, the Old Testament. He said, these weren't cleverly designed to, to, um, to take people captive or to deceive people. He said, but we were eyewitnesses of what the scriptures talked about. 
And he goes on to tell the story of when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, from when he received honor, talking about Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice came to him by the majestic glory, the voice of the Father, he, the, the Father said this, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that mountain. We saw it. And we have the prophetic word, talking about the scriptures again, more fully confirmed. He said they were confirmed, but we were eyewitnesses when the Father spoke to him. And we confirmed it. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, talking about the Old Testament, and even what he was writing was going to become scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. They didn't make it up on their own will, by their own fancy, just because they had a good idea. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They weren't just made up, because we have seen when Jesus was, was born and came into this world, they fit together perfectly. They were witnesses. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but witnesses are really important. In a court of law, witnesses will decide if you win a case or you lose a case. Any court of law, any, um, any, um, anything that's going on, witnesses will decide it. They were witnesses, and, and actually there were 500 witnesses that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Ancient history records that there was um, a man that was born named Jesus, and there's actually some people who documented he rose from the dead. So we, we are standing on good ground to say that Jesus not only existed, but rose from the dead. So this is what Peter is saying. We were witnesses. We saw it. I mentioned earlier that the Bible is inspired and infallible. Well, I, I want to I break down these theological terms real quick. I'm not going to go a lot into this, but these are terms that you need to know. Talking about, is the Bible true? Infallible, what does that mean? Incapable of making a mistake, error, or being wrong. So the Word of God is incapable of making a mistake. Never failing, completely dependable or trustworthy. God's word is dependable. It comes from this Latin word, infallibilitas. Infallibilitas. Somebody can correct me later. It means does not deceive, is not deceived. God's word does not deceive and is not itself deceived. Why? Because the word of God is God-breathed and God is not deceived and he does not deceive. We place our hope in the Word of God because we know that God is good and there's no, uh, um, there's nothing, there's no lie in Him. Another word that I'm going to briefly touch on, and I'll probably mention more next week, is the word inerrant. It's similar to infallible, but it's a little different. Inerrant means without error or absence of any error. So infallible has to do with um, God Himself is, uh, has complete truth and doesn't have any error in him. In error, it means that the book we have today does not have any errors. Now, this is, hot, this is very debated because, um, and let me finish saying this, people who hold the inerrancy of Scripture belief believe that the original documents um, didn't have any error. So if we were able to look at the paper or the parchments that, Paul wrote on or Peter wrote on, they would say, we would say that those don't have any errors. But the thing is, we don't have the original papers. We have um, cop many, tr uh, we have translations that were copies of copies of copies of copies. 
Again, I'll talk more about that next week. But they would say that, that those are inerrant. Well, there's a little issue with that because there are places in the Bible that seem to contradict themselves. Um, for example, I don't have to, I'm not going to get into this more next week, but the resurrection. I, I challenge you to go and read the, the different accounts of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're going to see they're all a little different. And somebody that's skeptical may say, hey, look, the Bible's not reliable because there's different accounts. We'll deal with that later. So um, we believe the Word of God is infallible, and I, believe, I personally believe it's inerrant, but there is, there's a way to describe it. Okay. God used 40 divine, divinely inspired men to write what we have today. And I want to point out, I don't believe these men went into a trance, blacked out, went into a trance, woke up, and then they had the Bible in front of them. Like, oh man, wow, that's awesome. No, I believe that these men were just like us. They were mortal, they were sinful, but God chose still to use them. Some of these people that he used were shepherds, they were kings, they were scholars, fishermen, prophets. There was a priest, a military general, and a cupbearer that he used to give us the word. They used different literary styles. If you are um, an into English or English major, you'll recognize these styles. But 30, 43% of the Bible is narrative, which is history, stories, storytelling. Most of the Bible is storytelling. You have history, you have parables, and short biographies. There's also poetry, which is 33 or a third of the Bible, 33%. Psalms, the wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations. And then the prophets, the major prophets and minor prophets. You also have prose discourse. What is prose discourse? Speeches, somebody giving a speech in front of somebody else. Letters or discourses. You find those in the law, in the Pentateuch, when Moses is giving the law to the Israelites. He's dis- giving them a discourse, wisdom, and then the letters by the apostles will also fall in this category. God used ordinary people to give us his love letter in the same way he used Mary. Mary was a very special person, but she is not more special than any of us. She was a human just like us, but she was given the, the divine privilege to carry the Son of God. I'm thankful because that means he can use all of us. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 authors in three languages over a span of 1,500 years, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. Just to give you a little context, the Torah, not the Torah, the Quran, which is uh, the Muslims' holy book, was written by one man over 23 years. 23 years, one man. The Bible, 66, uh, 40 men over 1,500 years. And despite their unique literary and cultural differences, the Bible is the most unified book ever written. I want you to consider these difficulties. I'm going to read something in a moment. They didn't live in the 21st century where they could just Zoom one another and make sure they were on the same page. They didn't have computers. They didn't have floppy drives. They didn't have floppy disk or these drives. They didn't have, um, I don't know if they had, uh, what are those carrier pigeons? They may have had that, but I don't know if they utilized that. They wrote on parchments, and they carried them around. They had... They, I'm sure they had fires like we did. They went through the same things. But it is the most unified book ever written. 
I want, to, I, want to, I want to point you to this image on the screen. Some of y'all have seen this image before. A professor, Chris Harrison, and a pastor, Christoph Romhild, came together and decided to put together a picture that, that shows all the cross-references in the Bible. There are 63,779 cross-references. You see 63, over 63,000 lines in this picture. Somebody said it is, uh, could be argued it's the first hyperlinked book ever written. I don't want to explain this just a little bit so you know what you're looking at. So at the, towards the bottom, you see like this black line, and then you see white, uh, kind of like a bar graph below it. If you, if you Google the picture, it's not all white. There's at the first book, Genesis is white, and then uh, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, is white. But all the other books are different shades of gray to signify where the books are. Um, the lines are the length of the book, how many verses. If you look in the very middle, which, which is the longest chapter? Psalm 119, and it's longer than any other one. It's kind of cool because that symbolizes it's the foundation. It goes further down than all the other them. The Word of God is our foundation. When you look at these lines, it is one verse being linked to another verse in another part of the Bible. Remember, 1,500 years. What do you think the possibility is of you having that many cross-references randomly? Listen to this. This is George Guthrie. He says, the cross-references tell us that the Bible is a beautifully rendered tapestry rather than a chaotic patchwork quilt. Consider the fact that the books of the Bible are written in three languages over a millennium and a half in, ver- in a variety of types of literature by about 40 different people who lived in sometimes radically different cultures. Look, three different languages, like different, completely different languages, and they're still the same. And there's still one message through it. who lived in sometimes radically different cultures across a geographical chunk of the world that spans about 2,500 miles. Remember, you could only travel so far in one day. Over 2,500 miles, the Bible was written within an area of 2,500 miles. In the face of such diversity, the unity and flow of the Bible's meta-narrative is breathtaking. In the image above, notice not only the comprehensiveness of touch points, for the references, they fill the whole span. And I love this point. He said, there aren't just cross-references at the beginning of the Bible and at the end. There are cross-references all throughout the Bible. But also the clear symmetry and balance. As Christians, we believe in God's superintending of the process. If the Bible's development had been completely random, chaotic, purposeless in terms of going somewhere, I don't think we would have the image before us today. To make something that's so symmetrical is you have to believe in crazy odds or believe that there's a God. It's just about, that's the only explanation. Not only is the Bible symmetrical and prove itself, but the Bible has also made several predictions throughout history that have come true. I'm going to list a few of them. Daniel, the prophet, prophesied in 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ, that there would be 
a ruler that would come and he would establish a great kingdom, but then he would die suddenly and then his kingdom would be split up into four kingdoms. And then after a little time, those four kingdoms would become two kingdoms and after that it would become one kingdom and then the Messiah would be born. You can go read it. 200 years later in 300 BC, probably the most famous conquering king, one of the most famous conquering king came on the scene, Alexander the Great. His kingdom, though, suddenly ended because he died when he was 31, and then his kingdom was taken over by four generals, four kingdoms. After that, those four kingdoms became two kingdoms because two of the generals were stronger than the other two, and those kingdoms were the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic uh, empires. That, those two kingdoms then became one kingdom, the Roman Empire. And who was born during the Roman Empire? Jesus. Even scholars who don't believe in the Bible are astounded at the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. You can read it. He prophesied this would happen 200 years before it happened. Either he's extremely lucky, lucky or he had someone talking to him about the future. Not only that, Israel, think about this, Israel becoming a nation again. The last time Israel was their own nation was over 2,000 years ago. There's no people group in all history that had a kingdom or a nation, lost it, and then hundreds of years later became a nation. And now they're one of the most powerful nations in the world. It has not happened. Like, it has not happened. The Bible prophesied it would happen. Not only that, but the Bible predicted uh, many different things about the Messiah, about, about, about G- uh, we know Jesus. But before Jesus was even on the scene, there were 54 prophecies about the Messiah, and we know that Jesus fulfilled all of them. Now, what are the chances that, that one man would fulfill all 54 prophecies? Well, somebody did the math, and the probability of that happening is one and 10 to the 157th power. 157th power. Somebody came up to me before service, don't quote me, but they said, that's about, that's over a thousand zeros after the one. A thousand zeros. That one man, the chance one in that number that a man could fulfill all 54 prophecies, it'd be millions of times easier to win the lottery a bunch of times. A bunch of times. Than for one man to fulfill 54 prophecies. Somebody decided, okay, that's a big number. We, we can't understand that. That's way bigger than any of us can understand. Um, what is the probability that one man could fulfill eight prophecies? Just eight of them. That number is one in 10 to the 17th power. 17th, from 157 to one in 10 to the 17th. And just for reference, 1 million is, is 1 in 10 to the 6th power. 6th power. This is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That number is 100 quadrillion. So he decided, okay, that still doesn't help me because we don't understand these big numbers. We don't under, many of us don't understand what a billion dollars looks like. We, we say we wish we were a billionaire. But we don't even understand how much money that is, much less a trillion, much less 100 quadrillion. So he came up with this analogy. He said, if you were to take a silver dollar and it represent just one, one number, and you were to get 100 quadrillion silver dollars and fill them in a space, let's take Texas, for example, fill in Texas, how many silver dollars would that be? They did the math, and if you took that many silver dollars and put them in Texas, you would have Texas completely filled 
two feet high with silver dollars. Two feet high. We know how big Texas is. He said, the odds of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies would be the same odds as if one man went and found one specific silver dollar randomly one time. He would, if he could walk wherever he wanted in Texas and then just put his hand down and grab one, that would be the same odds that someone would fill just eight prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled 54 of them. What are the odds that the person who claimed to be the Messiah would be born in the town that was prophesied about him hundreds of years before that? King David said that the Messiah would, he, he described it, that the Messiah would be, would be crucified. He, he described a torture technique that wasn't even invented yet. It wasn't until 500 years later that, someone, that it was recorded that someone died by crucifixion. And then Jesus came 500 years later and he fulfilled that prophecy. It was prophesied that Jesus would die with among other sinners. What, are, what do you think the odds are that there would be other people that would die the same way that he died on the same day? Those are just three prophecies. Listen, the Bible can be trusted. The Bible is accurate. And there's actually, there are historians that record that Jesus was a man and there were stories that recorded that he rose from the dead. And I could really spend the rest of the time proving it, that the Bible can be trusted. But ultimately, I need you to listen to this. Ultimately, we have to take a step of faith that the Bible is the infallible word of God. It's not a leap of faith. A lot of, people, a lot of uh, atheists, agnostics would say, oh, you have to take a leap, a huge leap. You don't. You have to take a bigger leap of faith that we're here from nothing. Like that's a way, way bigger leap of faith. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the currency of heaven. And it lists all of the heroes of our faith that walked in faith and saw God work on their behalf. We understand and receive by faith. We receive our blessings by faith. We receive our prayers answered by faith. Look what Jesus said in John 5.39. You search the scriptures. He's talking to religious people who knew the law, who knew uh, the Torah, that knew the traditions, knew everything. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, you think you have eternal life because you know the words on these pages. And it is they that talk about me, witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know what he's saying? He's saying it doesn't matter how much you can verify that the Bible is real, that the scriptures are real, that is not going to lead you to your salvation. And I was actually having this thought uh, this past week, and I'm probably going to preach about this at some point. But the people, think about the people that Jesus ministered to, that he preached to, that he healed, the people that he healed. They saw miracles. They saw signs. They saw the loaves multiply. They saw Jesus' miracles. They saw him walk into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. All that was not enough to keep them from crucifying him. You know what that tells me? It's not miracles that are going to win people over. It's not a prayer that's answered. It's faith that is going to lead, us, lead people to Jesus. There's another, I'm going to use this later. There's another um, story in the New Testament where about a man who went to hell and he was talking to, he, he was talking to Abraham. And uh, Abraham was in heaven and he was in hell. And he said, Abraham, can you give me just a drink of water? Like, I just need a little, it's so hot here. And he said, I can, there's, a, there's a big divide between me and you. I can't go there. And he said, well, at least go and tell my brothers 
Go and tell my brothers that, um, that there's a hell. Maybe they can change their life and they won't come here. He said, even if I were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. They have the law and the prophets. He said the law and the prophets are important because they point to Jesus. He said, not even if they saw a miracle, they wouldn't believe. There are many of us who have seen Jesus work. Oh, this is good. There are some people that have seen Jesus work in our lives. God has saved you from hell, literally, and you still don't believe. It's not evidence that changes our minds. It's not evidence that changes our lives. It's only Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's it. William Lane Craig says said this. He said, we don't believe in Jesus because we believe in the Bible. We believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. The word of God is the foundation of our house, of his house. He's the foundation, not a book, the word of God. And when we read his word, we have the author sitting right there with us. It's indestructible. It doesn't matter if we took every book and burned it. The word of God would. God's, God's word would not return void, as he said. Let's stand.